This is episode 235 of the Beyond the Food Show. And today we're going to talk about how you as a mom can integrate intuitive eating in your family. And I have two guests for this, a family health expert, Dr. Jillian Murphy, and Sally, a mom. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Going to Beyond the Food Show. I'm Stephanie Dozier, clinical nutritionist and emotional eating expert, creator of the Going to Beyond the Food Method and founder of the Going to Beyond the Food Academy. Corporate executive turned health expert with my own journey with weight, body image, and food. It's now my mission to help smart, successful women like you live confidently right now and unconditionally. Ready, sister? Let's do this. Hello, sisters. I am so excited about this episode. I have been wanting to put out a podcast episode about family intuitive eating for a very long time. We do have a blog on our website about that, but I wanted to put out something even better on this podcast here for you. So this is our second threesome, by the way. Yeah, I had a threesome about two months ago. We did a podcast episode on fertility and pregnancy in fat bodies with Ashley and Nicola. And today it is another threesome. And because I strongly believe in lived experience. And just like with pregnancy and fertility, I'm not a mom, never been pregnant. Uh, I brought on a guest who was a mom. And so I'm doing the same thing here. I brought on a an expert, Dr. Jillian Murphy, which by the way, it's her second time on the podcast. Um, Dr. Jillian Murphy is a naturopathic doctor and her practice, Food Freedom Body Love, is specializing in family health. And she's also a mom of two. And then we have Sally Glapsy, which is a student of our intuitive eating project. So she did the project healed her home relationship to food, and she is now in the stages of implementing intuitive eating in her family. And she had a bunch of questions. So we created a podcast for you. Now, um, a bit of a caveat here, if you're like completely new here, um, the main point to get started with in regards to integrating intuitive eating in your family is first for you. Assuming you're a mom, it's to heal your own relationship to food first. Prior to you teaching, educating, or changing anything in your family setting, you cannot teach what you don't know. You cannot teach what you don't do. And we'll talk about that in the podcast here. And then the second stage is you need to create an alignment between you and your partner, the other parental unit within your family to make sure that when you roll this out to the kids, both adult or both caregiver are in alignment. Now, when I get questions from my student or from my client around intuitive eating, there's kind of two perspectives here. There's 
typically it's the mom who have been a dieter her whole life and she now has children who are starting to behave like her. And it's like a wake-up call for mom to say, holy moly, the last thing I want is to pass on my, quote, food issues to my children. And then she gets this motivation to work on her own relationship to food. Or we have a mom who's pregnant and she's like, okay, this is my deadline now. <laughs> like I have to fix that prior to me giving birth to a child. And I don't want to even introduce any notion of dieting to this child life. So how do I raise an intuitive eater? So it's kind of two different perspectives, but they both come down to the same thing. And that's what we're going to talk about today in the podcast. So here's the, the kind of the agenda, because it's quite of a, a lengthy podcast. Uh, but I think you're going to savor every minute of it. So first, we're going to talk about the process of normalizing food with children, uh, the division of responsibility between children and parents, because intuitive eating with a child is different than a grown up adult. We're going to talk about the competent eater model versus intuitive eating model, how to develop critical thinking in our children about food what to do about the whole gluten situation, specifically when you've been restricting gluten, how do you go about reintroducing it with your children, how to address sugar and sweet food, and how to handle nutrition education from school. Now, before we get to the interview, stay tuned here. You got to stick to the end because at the end of the podcast, I'm going to share with you a free big time resources for all moms that you are a mom now want to become a mom, you're going to want to make sure you have this resource because it's pretty much everything you need to roll out intuitive eating and body image to your children. So that's going to come at the end of the podcast. Ready? Let's do the interview. So welcome to the show to both of you. Hi, thank, thank you for having Hi. us. Yeah, so excited to be here. I'm excited. This is my second threesome. Oh, really? <laughs> I haven't listened to your first one yet. It's on my docket, but I'll get there. But it sounds intriguing. <laughs> so in the philosophy of lived experience, I did a, a, a podcast dedicated to um, pregnancy and fertility in fat women and never been pregnant. Mm -hmm. So I brought in a lived experience person and an expert. So this is the same concept today. Sally uh, is one of our students in the intuitive eating project and Dr. Jillian is the expert. So I'm going to pass it on to you. You're not going to hear a lot from me unless I have to interject somewhere. And it's all about uh, the question that Sally has for us in the context of intuitive eating for the family. So Sally, over to you. All right, great. Um, okay. So I listened to your five, um, podcast series on intuitive eating for children, the ones, um, and it was super, super helpful. Um, and I just had some like follow-up questions and I'm so excited to be here to kind of dive into this a little deeper for my family and hopefully maybe it'll help other people. But, um, you have mentioned like the division of responsibility, um, Ellen Satter's, um, protocol, and, um, we've been doing it a little bit you know, I mean, somewhat for the past couple of years, but, um, I think that 
uh, one of my biggest questions is um, the messaging I've been sending with my kids regarding um, like restrictions, you know, um, as we all are trying to do the best for our kids. Um, I think that, you know, what I thought I was doing for my children by say restricting sugar and candy and um, for our family, we restricted gluten too. So um, I thought I was doing well by them. And now diving into intuitive eating, I'm realizing that um, I want to give them a different message about those things. And so um, I guess I'm curious, like, can you speak to, you know, rehabilitating that kind of relationship with food when you have restricted things Um, and the language you might use with kids, you know, regarding not having those any longer. So that's kind of one of my questions. Yeah. Okay. I love this. So what you're asking is how do you shift from a control model when it comes to nutrition in the house, Mm -hmm. which is like, there are all of these rules that we have to follow and like, you know, we can't be trusted around food to some extent. I know some of it is really subtle that you weren't overtly saying these things, Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. but that, you know, basically we need, we need external information to tell us what and how and when to eat to a trust model, which is that within a framework, um, we can be trusted when it comes to food, to eat the correct amount of food, to eat foods that are good for us, to eat the right, to eat a good variety of food. And how do we switch that messaging? Because control messaging, even when it's very subtle, is incredibly different from trust messaging, right? And so yes. um, the first thing I want to ask is how old the kids are, because this is really... Um, I'll explain as I answer the question a bit more, but it is really important to know, you know, where kids are at in terms of their ages. Sure. So I have, um, my son is three, well, I say three and a half, but he'll be four next month. And my daughter is seven and a half. Okay. So they're still quite young. I mean, I think your older Mm -hmm. daughter is definitely on the border. Like when kids are very young, one of the biggest, one of the biggest things that I try to express to parents is that we don't want to, um, teach children the adult's job. Like in the division of responsibility, adults are responsible for understanding, you know, nutrition and the, you know, information about nutrition and what a balanced diet, you know, quote unquote balanced Mm -hmm. diet looks like. And children really, when they're very young, actually right through until teenager dumb, um, really do best by learning through modeling, by by Mm -hmm. sitting down with their family eating together, having the opportunity within a framework, which is what the division of responsibility is, you know, we give them Mm -hmm. regular meals and snacks. And then within that framework, they have the autonomy and the freedom to experiment with food, to eat certain amounts of food, to say yes to food, to say no to food, and to have this whole childhood to learn how to eat the way that they're parents eat, right? And that developmentally, it takes that much time. You know, it does take time to learn how to eat the way that the grownups in their lives eat. And, you know, really the best thing that we can do is take responsibility for the what, the when, and the where of feeding and preparing of food and allow them that freedom to explore. Children are naturally curious. They naturally want to sneak up on food, but different kids have different developmental capacities for that. And so, you know, the biggest thing is, again, we don't want to teach children the adult's job. And when we do, when we give children too much nutritional information too early on, it can actually stunt them. So what I see in my practice is a lot of children who start to become fearful around food, like research has shown that even children in grades three and grade four 
They can use terminology like low fat or high fiber or nutrient dense, but they don't really know what that means or how to apply it. And so it can actually start to make them freeze up a little bit mm-hmm. when it comes to food. Like they all of a sudden, it's this added layer of like, I, I should be knowing what to do with this information, but I don't really know what to do. So um, really the question that you're asking is how do I shift? So mm-hmm. The biggest thing I'll say with really young children is you don't have to do a whole lot of talking. In fact, probably there's been, you know, in our current culture of nutritional over information and reductiveness and and oversimplification of nutrition, we tend to give children too many words when it comes to food. And so with really young kids, I just suggest going back to modeling, like really sinking into that division of responsibility and taking control for the purchasing of food and the preparing of food and the getting it in front of them regularly. And Mm -hmm. then allowing children to the freedom to eat as much as they want and what they're going to eat of what you put on the table within that framework. Like, and, and you just sitting with them and modeling and just, we don't have to do a whole lot more talking about it. Now I will say that, that, that the seven-year-old is probably, um, old enough that she may start to ask questions, right? If there have been this, if there has been this thought process Mm -hmm. around food, and all of a sudden it's shifting, um, you know, as with sexual exploration or ex with, you know, as with like, um, you know, exploration of other events that are happening in the world. What I generally recommend is that we just answer questions as far as children take the question. So um, if she were to say, you know, I thought gluten was terrible for us. Like, why are mm-hmm. we eating it? You know? <laughs> what would you say? I mean, like, I kind of fielded that a little bit because I, you know, um, since I've introduced it, you know, since I, I you know, I've, I've fielded it a little bit, but I'd love to hear your words around that. Well, well what did you say? I really, I'm interested. Oh gosh, I'm trying to think. Oh my gosh, it was a bit ago, but um what did I say to her? I said, you know, um, there's some new things we're going to be doing with food. Um, cause we, I feel like I do a good job. We do a good job about, um, the division of responsibility for a while now. That's pretty, that's pretty good. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I feel like we, you know, I sit down at meals. Like, I feel like we have a pretty good stronghold on that. I tightened it up a bit, um, since listening to, um, a lot of your information, but, um, but what I said about the gluten, I think I said, you know, um, I'm learning more about foods, things, you know, things that I, you know, did in the past, we're exploring different ways of, you know, eating now. Um, and, and I said, you know, I think that I made a mistake by, by not allowing you to have that food. I think that, you know, maybe it, it, it um, it wasn't the right thing to do. So I'm oh. going to offer it, you know, and Sally, so good. It's so good. And I was like, you know, you know, when it comes up and she was so excited uh, that like, that's the part that like hurts my heart, you know, she was like, when I go to birthday parties now, I can have this. And, um, and so it, it was, it was, you know, it was, I was glad to like, it felt like a relief because I feel like I've been like, you know, the police, the gluten police for years now, you know, and it feels like, you know, I'm still working through some of the, um, the nutritional rules that I've had in my head about it. But I will say just letting it go feels like a huge, just like, oh, I don't have to like, 
you know, be uptight about this anymore as much, you know, so. Oh, I just, I get, I have like tears in my eyes. I feel like you manage that so beautifully. And I think like the major thing to take home is just owning, Hey, I was doing the best I could. I thought that I was giving good information based on what I knew, but I'm learning, mm-hmm. you know, it's that, that I, I can't remember the quote who it came from, but it's like, when we know better, we do better. And and we don't need yeah. to get into all of that with kids, you know, again, the yeah. fewer words, the better, but I love that we are going to approach food in a new way in our home where we trust that our bodies can manage how much to eat and the right foods to eat. And our only job is to be in touch with our bodies and to listen to our bodies. That's it. And that's it. That's it. Right? Like kids don't often need much more than that. If they do, if they're older, they may press or they may push. And again, I just try to meet kids where they're at and just keep reinforcing again, without having to go into all the details about it, just trust messaging that we can mm-hmm. trust and that, you know, our job is just to, to sit down together as often as we can to, you know, regular meals and snacks, to feed ourselves regular, regularly and to be aware of, of when our body's hungry and full and, and mm-hmm. the food that our bodies enjoy. And just as an aside, not part of the conversation, um, with the children, but just an aside for those who are like, yeah, but gluten does feel terrible to me. I just want to mention that like, as you turn to a trust model, intuitive eating doesn't mean ignoring how food Mm -hmm. feels in our body. Mm -hmm. So you can open this up. You can approach food in an intuitive and trusting way. And if you as an adult notice that gluten doesn't feel good in your body. That's, Mm -hmm. that's intuitive information. That's your body speaking to you and you can follow that. And, you know, within the division of responsibility, we, we serve food up family style. You can serve up foods that are gluten-free without demonizing, you know, gluten Mm -hmm. for those who it feels fine to. Um, You can allow your children to explore food and maybe, maybe your kids do fine with gluten or maybe one does fine with gluten and the other doesn't. What we're doing is just trying to neutralize the emotional reaction and the emotional messaging around food so that each person at the table has the ability to tune into their own body, right? And so I just want to mention that because, you know, it doesn't mean that when we allow all foods into our diet, that necessarily all foods are going to feel great or all foods are going to agree with everyone or that we have to eat all foods. It just means that all foods are allowed. And then again, the intuitive process is about um, being in touch with our bodies and seeing how it feels and, um, and knowing that there tends to be quite a bit of gray area when it comes to these foods, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, well, a follow-up question that kind of tipped me when you were talking was that my my daughter, um, I think, is getting different information at school, and that's been a little bit hard. You know, they did this whole thing um, with sugar and like, you know, like and um, oh yeah, and that's been a little bit hard too. I mean, we, I mean, with most subjects, we're always like, you know, everybody has different opinions, and I may disagree with your teacher for you know, like that kind of thing. But like, but I, I'm kind of curious, like to navigate that too, like the messaging, you know, they're getting in quote unquote nutrition class versus, um, you know, what we do at home is different. Oh yeah. It's, it's incredibly tricky because there's different information coming out at school. Um, my children get different information. Like there are not even their teachers, but there's assistants that manage lunch hour. And so Mm -hmm. often the nutritional information that they get is just totally at the whim of whoever happens to be monitoring the room. So I've had things like, you know, granola bar, them being told that a, that a granola bar in their lunch is unhealthy for them and they shouldn't be eating it. Um, and then what's really interesting is as they get older, um, the children become 
from the major food policers because they're, they're, um, repeating information that they're getting at home. And again, if we go back to the research, what's really interesting is kids can use the words, but they don't always understand those concepts in context Mm -hmm. or even how to Mm -hmm. use them. For example, um, just, just an example was, uh, one of my friends loves to get the kids, uh, a gift for the holidays. And, And she just loves to get them something that like they don't normally get, or they wouldn't normally have. And so this year she got each of them like $10 to McDonald's, you know, which is just, just for fun. She just, you know, it was like a fun thing. And, uh, my eldest daughter is now able to leave the school and actually go out with her friends to get lunch. And so she had sort of suggested, um, that they go get fries for lunch. And one of the girls launched into this whole, it's unhealthy. And do you know how many ingredients are in that and how bad that is and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, the other choices that they often make are like pizza, pizza, or like, you know, the melt where they get different fries or a grilled cheese sandwich or, you know, Starbucks where they're getting these drinks or whatever. So it was, you know, and, and they're also like children who are presented with lots of nutritionally varied foods. And, you know, I have no concern about that, but it did open up this really interesting conversation about classism. Like, you know, like the fact that there's just as many ingredients in a Starbucks drink, it's just fancy. And so people, people, you know, are okay or they're okay with French fries from the melt, even though they're fast food, but they're not okay with French fries from McDonald's. It just opened up. Mm-hmm. I think that I think it's problematic. So I just want to say first and foremost, I think that, you know, again, if we understand that children learn best by modeling the nutritional system and the way that we teach it in school, like children don't often know how to manage a food pyramid or a food guide. They just mm-hmm. don't. And that information isn't actually very helpful to them. And what would be helpful is we just sat down and ate with them instead of imposing food rules and then turning on a television and leaving the room, which is what, you know, what happens at our school sometimes, or, or children are just left to their own devices because there's one person monitoring four classes Mm -hmm. of kids eating at once. Right. And so first of all, I just want to say, I think the system and the way that we teach kids about nutrition is problematic and we would be actually sitting with them and eating with them and modeling manners and food acceptance and very mm-hmm. that would be the way we would do it. It's not the way we're doing it. And what is happening is a lot of really inconsistent messaging is getting to the kids about food. Um, a lot of information that they can't really manage and they don't exactly know what to do with. And that's not developmentally um, appropriate is getting to them. Mm-hmm. And um, so first of all, I think what you said was I just challenge it with like, people do think about things in, in a lot of really different ways. And so when they're very young, I just go back over and over and over again to how we feel about food and how we approach food. And the fact that this control model, again, I don't necessarily use that word, but that mm-hmm. there's this model in the world of, um, nutrition that doesn't allow for basically the lived experience of eating and that there are a lot of people who eat a lot of different ways and have done so for ages and that there are many different ways to be healthy. So I just kind of like when they're young, I just keep coming back to that idea of like how our family approaches food Mm -hmm. and our philosophy on food. Cause I think that that's really impactful for a young kid. And then as they get older, like with that example, with the fries versus the Starbucks, whatever drink, I feel like I can get a little bit more into the politics of it. And it's very impactful for for kids Mm -hmm. when they're 12 or 13 to start to get into the politics of eating and like, um, you know, the foods that we eat typically versus foods that we eat occasionally and how these foods can all fit into a balanced diet. 
Um, and also this idea of what we classify as healthy versus unhealthy and the forces that are at work Mm -hmm. when it comes to that. So, you know, I mean, it's not a simple answer, but I think like, um, as kids get older, um, we can start to play a little bit more on their critical thinking. And I, and I just do a lot of, 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 um, poking holes in things, asking questions, poking Mm -hmm. holes, um, and I think it's not perfect. I think that my kids are still getting not great information about fat and weight and health and food out in the world. But I will say that they are exhibiting very good critical thinking skills and that they'll mm-hmm. come home and say, you know, um, so-and-so said she's on a diet. I'm worried about her. I don't think mm. that that's a good thing for her. And then we can have mm-hmm. that conversation or, or this example with the French fries, you know, so-and-so says this is terrible. And then we, we talk about, you know, within the context of eating what's terrible and what's not and how we're qualifying what's terrible and what's healthy and unhealthy. So yeah. Great. Yeah. That's it's a, it's a, it's a big question, but I think that, you know, at this, at this day and age, we're being forced with like lots of complicated situations. And so I just try (laughs) to approach food in the same way I'm approaching a lot of these other things, you know? Yeah. Oh, totally. I, uh, um, I agree. I think it does feel like it's a, um, just an offshoot of a lot of the other types of questions, you know, conversations we're having because people have different opinions about all sorts of things, you know, politics or religion or, you know, all things. So it's, it's right. It feels like it, you know, using similar language makes sense to me. Yeah. And I love that idea of like, there are people that are going to think about this differently and we just need to be really true um, to what we believe in. Right. Mm -hmm. And we can just, we don't need to, you know, I often say like, we don't need to get into arguments. We can just, we can know what we know to be true for us and we can just stick with that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. If I can just make one more comment on this, I think what's very interesting for you, Sally, and all the other women that are moving towards intuitive eating, you can add this teaching our children, the ability for us to change our mind. Like we (laughs) evolve with our thinking and using that as an example of how you change the way you think, like we're not set to think one way for the rest of our life. Yeah, that's great. That's a great mm-hmm. point, you know. With older kids on that same note, like especially if they bring home a lot of like the newest food rules or fads, what I'll do is mm. actually point out the history, right? Yeah. And so that's really interesting for them as well to see how these nutritional theories and philosophies that have evolved and some of the crazy things that we used to think were true and that people were bending themselves in half trying to adhere to. And then I'll say, and you know what we've known to be true for 150 years is just feeding ourselves regularly, feeding mm-hmm. ourselves a wide variety of foods you know, mostly, you know, trying to eat unprocessed food when we can, but giving ourselves lots of room for a balanced diet. Like this is what we've known to be true for, for mm-hmm. across time, you know, and that, that sort of simple uh, breakdown is also very helpful for older children. Again, with younger ones, I just really try to stick to modeling, keeping it simple, not too many words, really just providing them with ample opportunity to learn to eat on, on their own. Right. Awesome. Yep. Do you want me to keep asking questions? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. What's next? What's next? <laughs> okay. Um, one thing that I was curious about is kind of like when we're like uh, normalizing a food again, you know, um, you mentioned um, that like, say, for instance, say like in the Ellen Satter's division responsibility, like um, like desserts, like, or, yeah, you know, I try to call it like, oh, we're having a brownie, you know, call it what it is, it's about instead of dessert, you know, but um, 
like, can you talk about, okay, two, two, two questions that kind of feel kind of together is right. like, um, you know, when you offer one serving of d- dessert, right. Mine in, then you have unlimited amounts of, you can have as much broccoli as you want or whatever. Like, how does that, how, how do you, like, how is that uh-huh. not seen as restriction? Uh-huh. Great and question. also like, um, the second question that kind of is in this realm is um, when you're trying to normalize a food, say it's something that my kids have typically had somewhere else, like soda, bunch of candy. Like, is that, is like snack time a good time to offer that? And, you know, like, I guess I'm just kind of curious, like, when do you offer, say those things unrestricted? And when is it, um, you know, like, at dinner, say you're serving ice cream, everybody gets one little bowl of ice cream. So kind of like navigating that, um, normalizing of things and portions of things. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what you're identifying is like, um, judicious or appropriate use of quote unquote forbidden foods in family. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that is, there is the one breaking of the division because the division of responsibility in case someone is like, not clear on it, mm-hmm. who's listening is basically that parents are responsible for the what, the when, and the where of eating, the structure and the preparation and the food choices. And then children are responsible for the how much and if, right? So if they choose, you know, foods are served family style on the table. Again, mom and dad are really in charge of deciding what's on that table. So there's still plenty of control for parents. Mm-hmm. And then kids get to decide, you know, what they're going to choose to eat and how much they're going to eat and if they eat. And if for whatever reason they choose not to, um, then, then they don't eat again until the next regularly scheduled snack or meal. Right. And so it Mm -hmm. gives this, it's children are not necessarily, I mean, some kids are, but most children are not necessarily developmentally ready for a full intuitive eating plan. Like these are both, um, these are two research validated models that have been shown to be incredibly effective at getting individuals tuned into internal signals. Um, but in my experience, Ellen Satter's competent eating model is better for children um, because it provides the structure and the framework, especially if there's actually a feeding or an eating issue, like a child who is incredibly preoccupied with food or incredibly resistant to eating food or a child where the parent is incredibly worried about the child's weight, whether it's really low or high on the growth curve. The structure is so necessary and helpful for parents to have the confidence to help children get in touch with their own internal regulation. So these are two slightly different models. The competent eating model, I also find very helpful for adults who are way out of touch with their internal Mm. regulation like who cannot be trusted, whether it's because they're veering into actual eating disorders or for other reasons to actually just tune into hunger and fullness and appetite. So that structure is very helpful. I lost my train of thought, but essentially the division of responsibility within this model is there to provide structure so that we can trust children to have some freedom at meal and snack times to figure out what full feels like and to figure Mm -hmm. out how foods feel in our body, again, without us imposing rules on them that may or may not apply to them. It gives them the freedom to figure that stuff out for themselves. What do you like? What do you don't, what do you not like? What feels good in your body? What doesn't? The structure is 
the container with which we give them the freedom to explore and be curious and make mistakes and figure it out. Right. And so, um, within this model, it's also suggested that we regularly use forbidden foods so that they don't become foods that are on some interesting, weird pedestal that hold power over children, where when they're in the presence of that food, they're compulsive or compelled to eat it in, in bizarre ways. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. um, competent eating is about raising children who want to have a stake in their own care and the way that they feel and their health without it being rules that are imposed upon them by mom and dad, where as soon as mom and dad aren't around, all the rules go out the window and they just Mm -hmm. want to break them all, right? So competent eating is about raising kids that can manage themselves around all of the foods that are available to us in the world, because that's reality. Those foods are all available. And part of raising kids who are relaxed and at peace and eat quote unquote, forbidden foods in an objective neutral way is allowing them the ability to experiment with those foods and eat those foods in a pleasurable, relaxed, objective, neutral way. And so um, snack times are ideal for that because snack times are like extras, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. it's yes, we want to get food into kids, but it also, there's this moment where you can just put a huge plate of cookies on the table and really let kids eat as much as they want and allow them to find their own natural stopping point without a whole lot of consequence, right? Like Mm -hmm. kids can manage it. Um, It's also a good opportunity to, um, you know, put out, uh, you know, I'll do like a big plate of chopped up vegetables and a big bowl of chips and let them sort it out Mm -hmm. or whatever. So snacks are a really good time um, for introducing you know, again, I'm always putting it in quotations, this idea of forbidden foods. Um, Mm -hmm. Dessert is the time where we break the division of responsibility because ideally at every meal and every snack, we're really letting, we're staying in our own lane, we're putting the food on the table and we're letting kids um, decide if and how much, right? We're really letting Mm -hmm. them, we understand within a trust model that they have within them um, much more sophisticated management and, 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 um, like mechanisms for achieving balance than we could ever impose on them. So we're really giving Mm -hmm. them the freedom to tune into that and for it to happen. Dessert, we break that rule, which I know is confusing for a lot of parents because it's Mm -hmm. like, why are we breaking the rule? And so the first piece of this is that, um, sugary foods do interfere with regulation more than salty, fatty foods. They just do. That's just something that happens in human bodies. And it doesn't mean that we can never eat those foods or that we can't regulate ourselves around those foods because we can, but sugary foods um, can interfere more. And so dessert tends to be something sweet versus forbidden foods, which can run the gamut of like fatty and salty and sugary and anything in between. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that dinner tends to be, for most families, the prime um, moment in the day where we connect over food and, and where a lot of, of learning about how to eat is happening from parents and where there's Mm -hmm. a lot of nutrition actually getting into kids. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, we suggest within the Satter model that if you're going to serve food, that we don't withhold it until certain amounts of other eating is done. Right. So if you're going to serve dessert, um, you just basically put the serving of food on the table. And, and we do that. And that's been really interesting and helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
it was great. I had a great conversation with my sister the other weekend because she has children who are younger than mine. We're now at the point where we sometimes do that. Sometimes mm-hmm. we dessert at the end. The kids just understand that if dessert is being served, they're old yeah. enough now that yeah. they're going to be allowed to have it, that we're not withholding it from them. Mm-hmm. And so we don't get into the same struggles. We're kind of at the point where like, they just eat their dinner and then if dessert's going to happen, they get their serving when we serve mm-hmm. it, right? But for children who are younger, there is very often this thing where when they start to understand that dessert comes after the meal, they're very quick to rush their <laughs> meal and be like, I'm done. Now it's just, <laughs> and so my yeah. sister was saying that she was noticing this with her three-year-old. And so following, you know, Ellen Satter's advice, she started just putting the serving of dessert on the table. And we actually did it at this meal that we were having while we were all together. Mm-hmm. And her little guy will, like she said, it's so interesting because he did jump and he went to eat the dessert, but she said, it's so interesting because at that meal, he actually only ate a little bit of it. And then he went back to his dinner. So Mm -hmm. sometimes they eat the full serving and then they go back to their dinner. Sometimes they just have a bite and they go back to their dinner. Sometimes they don't even touch it and they eat. And the whole point is that, you know, if if dessert was just unlimited, they would have the ability to just keep eating the cake. Mm -hmm. You know, if that was there, some kids will do that. Mm -hmm. But if they just have one serving they can eat it all and then they are still generally hungry. So they go back and they, they eat the rest of the, the, you know, the more nutrient dense food that's on the table. Um, but the idea of one serving allows for this playing around and for kids to, you know, do their thing and not be held up or held hostage by like, I I just need to get dinner done so I can get to dessert. And Mm -hmm. what's interesting is sometimes they eat the dessert, like I said, and they go back to the meal. Sometimes they don't even eat the whole thing. Like it's Mm -hmm. just a very, it allows for that food to be incorporated without it interfering in the meal, without kids rushing through their meal to get to dessert. Um, And then, like I said, as kids get older, you can move into a more, you know, like socially acceptable, um, progress of a meal, but especially for young kids or kids who have a challenging relationship with dessert and with sugary food, this is an incredibly, you know, serving dessert with the meal is an incredibly good technique for, for neutralizing that response to dessert. But that's why that one serving is we break that rule with the division of responsibility. Because again, um, we want them to be able to, to neutralize their emotional response to that food, but also, you know, eat the rest of their dinner. I hope, I hope that makes sense. I hope that was, yeah, that does. That was a long answer. No, it's helpful to flush it out a little bit. Cause I was like, that's so interesting to me, but it, it does make a lot of sense. And um, when you explained it, I, I do see that happening with my kids certainly. And it's, it's really interesting. And I've shared it with a couple of parents. I don't know how it, you know, however it came up and they're like, Whoa, I never thought of it like that. You know, like basically taking it off its pedestal. That's it. That is exactly what it is. It's, you know, some people are like, that's sending the wrong message. I'm like, no, it's just all it's doing is saying that this is a food that we eat. We eat it normally. And I'll just say to my kids really straight up, because again, I think it's really interesting when we've been an adult that's been in restriction and we're trying Mm -hmm. to let go of restriction that when we set any boundaries with children, when it comes to food, it feels like we're restricting them. But I don't think of it like that at all. I think of it as just a boundary around food. And so I'm just, you know, as we get more matter of fact and more confident in in the model and in the skills with ourselves, we can approach and we can we can the, so much of about mess so much when it comes to messaging around food with children is about where we're coming from and how confident we are and what we're saying and why mm-hmm. we're doing. Like if a kid 
can't eat peanuts because they have a literal allergy to peanuts, we, we're able to send that message in a very clear, confident cut and dry way. And so I feel like, you know, I'm constantly trying to encourage parents when it does come to boundaries around food, like, you know, you get one, you know, last night, my kids were like, we had ice cream after dinner and, and, and they were like, can we have more? And I just said, no, mm-hmm. no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know in my, in my heart and in my body and in my brain that they have more than ample opportunity to get experience with forbidden food. And at dinner, mm-hmm. they had the experience and it's over. It's done. I'm not restricting them. I'm not limiting them. My intention is not to cut them off because I'm trying to control them. My intention is just to, to stick with the model, right? Which, it, which is, is freedom within um, a structure. And again, I just wanted to say that like, um, you know, as with everything, as with any kind of a model, I find that it's, this is particularly helpful. There are some kids that just naturally easily manage themselves around Mm-hmm. sugary fatty foods in a really a really easy way and there are other children just because of their personalities right like this isn't just about diet culture when it comes to how we eat there's a piece of it that's like mood and personality and mm-hmm. genetics like there's all these different things and so the structure is also just very helpful for children who just need more support as they figure this out whether they're a child that's inclined to be very restrictive around food, or if they're a child that's inclined to be, to like overdo it around food. The structure is just helpful for those, those personalities. If you have, if I always say to parents, like if you have a system that seems to be working and it feels really good and it feels pleasurable and relaxed mm-hmm. and your kids aren't struggling, I'm not suggesting that you mess with the whole system, you know? <laughs> yeah. This is just for parents who are struggling to figure out how to approach food in a trusting way and how to give children autonomy and freedom without feeling like it's a free-for-all. And again, it's particularly helpful for kids who struggle or for parents who are worried that their kids are struggling because of weight or food choices or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Can I direct a question, Sally, if you don't mind? Just make sure we get it in. Yes. in our time limits, <laughs> one of the questions you submitted was around this whole your own transition around following your hunger and fullness cue mm-hmm. and the timing with the children. Can you go to that question? Yes, if you don't mind. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and it's interesting as I continue like my intuitive eating journey, it keeps evolving, right? But um, one of the things I was curious is, you know, as we dive into intuitive eating ourselves, you know, we, we want to eat when we're hungry and not eat when we're not. And, um, when I'm providing, you know, you know, breakfast has to be at a certain time so that we can get to school and that kind of thing. Um, and I'm not hungry. I guess I'm trying to be like, I want to be the model, but I also don't want to eat when I'm not hungry. So, um, kind of navigating that, 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 timing kind of thing. And, um, let me see if I, yeah, I mean, that's a, I mean, I feel like I totally understand what you're asking and it's such a good question. And I'll say that it is really interesting that you bring this up because it's one of the differentiating factors between Ellen Satter's competent eating model and the intuitive eating model. It's like a very, Mm -hmm. it's a key differentiator between these two models. And one of the things that Ellen Satter says, one of the reasons that she advocates for her model, even in adults, is that she feels that um, at times intuitive eating can be a bit socially isolating for people because the Mm. idea is that we want to be coming together and eating together, that socially eating is an incredibly important thing, not just for children, 
Um, and we do know that it affects children on all levels, like eating together as a family, um, affects them, their academics, their confidence, their body image, the, their propensity towards, you know, engaging with drugs or sexuality inappropriately. Like it's so good on so many levels just sitting together and eating is so important and it's important for mm-hmm. adults as well. And so she sort of advocates for a little bit more structure um, because she feels like our hunger begins to attune to that structure. And so we can get better at eating together. And so I see it both ways because I feel like I work with adults who have had so many rules imposed upon them that they really do require a period of time where they are just able to be in touch with their body and follow their body. Um, and that there's real healing in that and trying to impose any kind of structure or rule can actually interfere with that. It, it's like, it, it, it draws a line in the sand that you can fall over. It like puts you on a wagon you can fall off of. You know what I mean? And so um, I will just say that I think that for for adults who are healing up their relationship with food, there can just be a little bit of a messy middle and we just need to understand that that's okay and that you can just just sit with the kids I think what you had said if I remember um when you when you addressed this earlier you had said you just sort of like try to have a little something with them or um I can't remember what you said but I feel like I have done this in the past as well where like because of whatever has happened throughout the day, I'm not actually hungry when I serve mm-hmm. the kids food. I just, I go through the motions of sitting down with them, of having a plate, of putting some food on my plate. And then I'm just, I'm, I'm in my own lane of what and if, and how much I'm going to eat at that meal in the same way that the kids are. Right. And, um, I think the most important thing is just sitting down with them and doing your best and also understanding that as you go through this intuitive eating journey and you evolve through it and you reestablish trust with your body, that you will be able to do things that are hard to do through some of the healing phases of intuitive eating. You will be able to hold off for an extra hour if it means getting to eat with the kids or, Mm -hmm. you know, like you will find that you have a little bit more flexibility in terms of like not necessarily needing to be 100% tuned into hunger at every moment of every day. You'll be able to adhere a little bit more to a, a quote unquote normal eating schedule as our culture approaches it. So I'll just say that such a good question. And it's, I think it's just a little bit of a messy middle for adults who are doing the work to heal up their own relationship with food. And I think that that's, you know, overall it's one of, it's, it's the most important thing that you could do in order to teach your good kids, good eating. So I think the messy middle is just worth it. Yeah. And I think I, and to get help Yeah, and to get help through that, right? Like that's what I do. If if someone is struggling with that, that's what I do. I know Steph does some of this, like Mm -hmm. if you're in a messy middle, get some support through that. Right. Yeah, that's a great idea, and I think that, um, and it, I think as is evolving for me, I've noticed exactly what you're saying. I think is I'm starting to see that a little bit um, that my body is kind of responding a little bit differently. Um, one of the things that I was going to mention was that sometimes I'll use it just as an opportunity to kind of reiterate the new, like what what we're doing. Like I'll just sit down with them and maybe have a cup of tea and say, you know, I'm just really trying to listen to my body. I'm not hungry right now. And just like, I don't make you guys eat when you're not hungry. I'm just trying to listen into that and kind of trying to use it as like, kind of like a little like moment for them to say, Oh, you know? Yeah. Just short, short matter of fact to the point, move on. Yeah. And then, and like I said, though, I always just, I think that's absolutely correct. 
Totally agree. And <laughs> understanding that long-term, we ideally want to evolve into a place where we're eating with our kids more often than not, if possible, because um, the benefit is really us modeling eating, right? So being with them eating. But that, if that's step one, that's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. In yeah. the beginning with intuitive DVD, and I was like, I'm eating at these crazy times. You know? like, <laughs> yeah. Like, it's so, it, it, but it was also like, wow, what a, what a revelation and what freedom to be able to eat whenever I'm hungry, you know, like relearning that as opposed to like, but it is starting to like, I feel, I feel as I go on, I am starting to settle and I'm like, Oh, look at that. It's dinner time and I'm hungry, you know? Yeah. starting to find hunger single signals settling in. And I always say like, you know, um, women in particular, I don't want to just say women, but women in particular have been so used to saying no. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. That there's this phase where we just need to be able to say yes, 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 mm-hmm. yes, yes, yes. But ultimately, the end point that I'm working to getting people toward is a place of discernment where we have a little bit like we're tuned into our body, we're mm-hmm. aware of what our body physically wants and needs, we're aware of our emotional needs. And then we also have the ability to use our brain to do some logistical planning. And, and mm-hmm. um, it's that discernment, right? Of being yeah. able to integrate um the mental logistical aspects of eating with the physical emotional pieces of it so um it just takes time it just takes time but it sounds like you are doing all the right things and you're getting there trying no i'm trying i mean i just feel so grateful to have been part of um stephanie's program it was just just life-changing really and to you know for her to have introduced me to your work is, you know, integrating it into family just feels like really kind of just, just amazing. I I think it's great that I get to talk to both of you and have both of you as, as teachers, um, because it is tricky to navigate this stuff, right. To reclaim your power and your respect for yourself while also trying to teach this to, to our children. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think, you know, I, I don't know. I just always think, um, that just the fact that you're willing to go through the work and do the work means that the kids are learning something right off the bat, right off the bat, regardless of how successful quote, you know, it is or how tricky it is. Just the fact that you care about it and that the intention is there to have a healthy, pleasurable, flexible relationship with food means that they are just, they're already on the right track. Yeah. So I want to wrap it up. Yeah. So we make that the digestible uh, solution for family. So I want to thank you, Sally, for sharing your question and your experience, right? And that's the power of lived experience is having the real pointed question that will help other women. So thank you for that, Sally. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, Jillian, for being here. So how do you help people and how can people work with you? So I work with parents who have children who are struggling with eating or just parents who are like, you know what, I want to approach food differently in my house and I'm not sure how to do it. I also work with adults and I work with them one-on-one. I work with them through single sessions. I also do packages. The best way to find me and my work, because I will do packages for families as well, where the adult needs some support as they support their children going through, is just to go to my website, www.foodfreedombodylove.com, or email me, hello at foodfreedombodylove.com. Explain to me what's going on for you, and then I will help direct you towards what I think is the best fit in terms of working together. Perfect. And people can have a taste of you from this podcast, but also going to link to the little introduction you did for intuitive eating for kids on our website. 
the five, it's a free five part podcast series on, um, yeah. Intuitive eating for kids. Yeah. We, we refer it in the program typically on lesson four, where we send parent there. Um, Oh, amazing. Amazing. It's super helpful. All the parents should listen to it. I've sent it off to like many friends. Like you got to listen to this. It's so interesting and good. Yes. Oh, I appreciate that so much. Thanks you guys. Uh, so thank you very much for having here. And if you have any more questions, please feel free to reach out to me and perhaps we'll do part two in the future. (laughs) Thank you guys. (laughs) Bye. Bye. There you have it, ladies. I think this is one of those quote Bible episodes. So there's not going to be some quick exercise for you here at the end. Uh, It's the resource that I want you to go and see that you're a mom or thinking to be a mom. You got to head over to my website and type in the website, stephaniedozie.com slash intuitive eating for kids. You can also go to the show notes, uh, stephaniedozie.com slash 235. There's going to be a link to access this one web page that has uh, audio guide from Dr. Murphy. Uh, there's four of them, actually five of them. There's one uh, that talks about competent ether, obstacle resistance and nutrition. A third one is how to help your child without harming, body talk and permission and discipline. Now, if you're a mom and want to work on your own relationship to food first, if you haven't done that work yet, then you got to head over to the Intuitive Eating Project. Uh, again, on our website, it is a self-study program for five weeks. Now, if you're listening live, today is April the 8th. We are running this program live three times a year, and we're about to start a live version on April the 13th, 2020. So if you want to use this time that we have right now to become an intuitive eater and to learn the foundation of it, come and join us in this live program. Share this episode with another mom, a sister, someone you know that could benefit from this. Remember, this is a grassroots movement. On the next episode, we're going to cover the five stages of becoming an intuitive eater. I love you, sister, and I look forward to hang out with you on the next episode.